everybody. I'm Frankie. And I'm Daniel. And welcome to Propagated Podcast. Yay! How are you? I'm great. I'm good. Um, the Facebook is up and running now. I haven't done a lot with it, but we do now have a Facebook. It's just propagated podcasts like most of our other social media ventures. Should be pretty easy to find. I'll be taking care of that one, so if you all look at it and it's not as clean and polished as the Instagram or Twitter, that's because I'm not as social (laughs) media savvy as Frankie is, so. But I... Don't really care for Facebook, so Daniel's gonna take that one from me. Thank you. <laughs> but we do already have over a hundred likes on it. Oh, that's awesome! Thanks, everybody. Maybe get you to make an Instagram post about it for people who do cross utilize, and then um, cross pollinate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I still sometimes forget that we're not pollinated podcast because that's what we tried to go for in the beginning. That was our first name, but it got taken. So we're I like propagated. It's just harder to spell. I feel like. <laughs> All I know is that if that podcast that exists ever tries to get a Gmail, I own pollinated podcasts at <laughs> Gmail. So if you ever listen to our podcast, I can surrender that to you, I yeah. suppose. You can get it from us, but you have to shout us out on your podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that them's the fees. Them's the fees. That's a pretty it's a pretty low tro- troll toll, you know? Like not I know. too bad. Yeah. I have no problem cross pollinating with fellow plant podcasts. I mean, it's got to be a decent podcast if it's called Pollinated Podcast, because that's what yeah. we wanted it to be, right? Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I'm happy with our name. I'm happy with our branding. I'm happy with this podcast. Thank you all for being here. I actually, before we start, I wanted to shout out everyone who has been messaging us and commenting, and even if you listen on a platform that doesn't do reviews, so many people have just been shouting out like, hey... I really like this podcast, and you should listen to it, and all of that means so much to us, and especially as a still a young, pretty young podcast, word of mouth is everything, and we thank you. It truly does mean the world, guys. That's what we need absolutely the most of. The more word of mouth we can get, the better our episodes will start to be, because we'll have more production quality and a better way to acquire better production quality equipment. (laughs) Yeah, and time, too. I mean, I dedicate as much time as I possibly can to the podcast, but as more people listen, that means I can dedicate more time, and the cycle continues. And I would also really love if more people sent us coffee, because that was amazing. <laughs> that was amazing. My Oh my gosh, my upstairs neighbor listened to the mini where we talk about the haunting we experienced, and they live in that apartment now, and they were like, yeah, I wanted to listen because you were talking about my apartment. I was like, that's the only episode you've listened to? And they were like, yeah. I was like, well, okay, I guess. <laughs> okay, I guess. Cool. Thanks, I guess. <laughs> thanks, but also, like, <laughs> I'm so sorry you had to hear the story. I really didn't want you to hear it because I didn't want you to think poorly of the place. <laughs> the only person in the world who probably didn't need to hear that one specific yeah, right? episode. Right. Oh, sorry, North. (laughs) I guess I'm going first. Going first is hard, but I'll do it. So today I am talking about something that is super lighthearted and airy, and we're all going to laugh and have a good time. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, When I was thinking about what I wanted to do for today's episode, 
I have a list of ideas and one of them really stuck out to me. It's something I've wanted to talk about for a while, but it's probably going to get really dark and kind of ranty because it's something that's really important to me and near and dear to my heart. And I think it is important to everyone who ethically sources the things they consume and the things they bring into their house. And I feel like so many plant people have this mindset of, I want to do good by the earth, but have a couple of these like ignorant spots and these dead angles where they don't really see that what they're consuming is not great. Because I think a lot of us, especially within capitalism, have this mindset of this transactional experience. You know, I give you money, you give me this thing, I get to consume it. Where so much of it behind the scenes is just terrible and awful practices and people not being held to standards that they should be held to if you're selling something for consuming. And yeah, so that being said, I'm going to talk about Palo Santo and White Sage. I find it curious how even when we decide that we're going to surprise each other with an episode and like not plan out a theme, I looked up something that also has like ethical boundaries to it for this week. Look at us go. So. Yeah, we did that with Fungus last episode, didn't we? Well, that one was a little bit more planned because you said you were doing it. Anyway, it's not important. (laughs) I think it's just like, I'm like, I might do any of these five things. And you're like, I might do any of these five things. And then it's like, (laughs) oh. We both picked the thing that was most exciting. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to start with white sage. And when I say white sage, I mean specifically the plant Salvia apiana. There are a lot of different kinds of sage, and there is sage brush, which is different. And we'll kind of go through that, but I am talking specifically about the plant white sage, Salvia apiana, near extinction. (laughs) The plant that is near extinction because of overconsumption. So, even though it's near extinction, or at least a lot of people are warning against it because it's not grown in a lot of places, it doesn't really have that many natural habitats, the USDA does say on its website that this plant does have really important medical benefits, but the thing about it is it only grows in this small strip in Southern California to Mexico. Very specifically, not too near the ocean and not too near the mainland. It has very specific growth parameters. So why is this specific plant popular? Okay, why don't you... What do you know about white sage? Let's start there. I know very little about white sage, if I'm being perfectly honest. I know that it is used in the spiritual practices of many people, um... I know that it originated from spiritual practices within a Native American tribe. I don't know which one. I don't have that knowledge on me. I know that primarily the tribe that used white sage used it for smudging, which is like, mm-hmm. in, in in my limited knowledge, is in a practice to, I guess, I don't know if it's either to seal out evil spirits or if it's to run away evil spirits or if it does both i don't like i said i have limited knowledge but Mm -hmm. that's pretty much the depth of my sage knowledge i do know that it is on the forefront of what many would consider to be cultural appropriation right now Mm -hmm. because of how it's being used but i don't i haven't 
done enough research into that to have an educated opinion on it. Well, guess what? We're about to learn. <laughs> a lot of the smudging ideas that you have are what mainstream culture is told through the consumption of sage. And it's not quite right, but there's a lot of different sages with a lot of different uses traditionally and historically in indigenous culture. But this particular plant that we're talking about, white sage, that is the only really sage that's in danger right now and being over-harvested and over-consumed, it became popular because of this book in 1932 called Black Elk Speaks. And it was this book about El Lakota elder who talks extensively about burning white sage for their smudging practices. The problem with this, though, is that he lived in South Dakota and white sage doesn't grow in South Dakota. It is silver sage that he was talking about, okay. which is a cousin to blue sage. <laughs> wow, I didn't even realize there were this many different sages to begin with. Mm -hmm. A lot of this confusion comes just from common name changes. I mean, it happens a lot in plants. We saw it in marigolds calendulas and marigolds, that confusion, because they were both called marigold at some point. Um, and we'll see it in the other thing I'm talking about today, which is Palo Santo. But basically, yes, silver sage is what black elk was talking about. Smudging traditionally was a ceremony by Native Americans, as far as I could read up and learn about without directly speaking to someone. Smudging is a ceremony for purifying or cleansing the soul of negative thoughts about a person or place. So again, different sages historically have been used for different things. And in the consumption of sage and use of it in households, it's kind of started to mean one thing. Like it's kind of like you took a whole bunch of spiritual stuff and mushed it into one thing which I don't love, but, but yeah. Like, for instance, in the Viejas Res in Alpine, California, the Kumie Indians used white sage as protection. It was the grandfather sage, and it was used for protection, whereas blue sage was the grandmother sage used for cleansing. And so okay. it's like even in these traditional um, uses of the plant itself, it's not what we've made it through media and through marketing. <laughs> well, it's very easy to market something as something that isn't. We've seen that happen. Many examples of that over the years. Mm -hmm. So here's the biggest place where that cultural misappropriation came from. <laughs> Anthropology, Urban Outfitters, Walmart, and Amazon have been selling these commercial sage cleaning kits. Bum, bum, bum. Imagine that. Oh, it was capitalism? What do you mean? <laughs> Could never be. Yeah. Anthropology pulled it, but Urban Outfitters, Walmart, and Amazon still sell it. So Wait, isn't Anthropology and Urban Outfitters the same ownership? Yeah, but I guess Anthropology got more shit, I guess. I don't know. But... Well, that's not. I mean, I was about to say, well, that's kind of surprising, but really it's not. No. No, I mean... <sighs> Corporate America, if you put the heat on, they'll usually do something about it because it hurts their bottom dollar, but only if it hurts their bottom dollar. So, 
Man, I love how we started this podcast about plants, and I feel like we talk about <laughs> corporate corruption so fucking much on it. It's kind Welcome of Welcome to Propagated Podcast. Now it's just about how capitalism sucks. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a product of the times, though, realistically. Well, and the truth is capitalism really hurts the um, ecological world. I mean, Yeah, absolutely. It directly, if you just look at data and science... It is detrimental to the. What is it? Then. It's what like eighty plus percent of all pollution comes from seven different seven different corporations. Yeah, it's disgusting. But anyway, we're here to talk about sage. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it comes back to marketing once again. These companies, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening have been susceptible to this. I know I have, because when you hear things like sustainably resourced, ethically wildcrafted, stuff like that, you're like, oh, wow, that sounds amazing. They're really respecting these plants that they're using. But all of that is marketing because they don't have any standards they're being held to. A lot of times they are pulling these plants right out of the ground. Um, people in California are harvesting so poorly, they go onto this public land, which is highly illegal. They take all of these plants. They do these things called snatch and grab, which apparently is where you go onto like on ramps on the highway and you run out of your car and you grab and snatch as much sage as you can before anyone sees you. Throw it in your car and run off and sell it. That is your ethically wildcrafted sage. <laughs> I think there's a lot of disillusionment with labels, especially in the plant world and uh even with foods and stuff a lot mm -hmm. of times what you perceive to be like a government sanctioned like legal label like you would imagine there has to be some sort of like legal certification that you go through to get the labels that you're putting on these products yep and most of them even if there is a certification it's almost always less than what you would assume would be necessary to meet those standards Absolutely. If there were any standards to begin with. And I really, that really bothers me deeply. Yeah. You and I have talked briefly about the organic label. Not on the podcast yet, but we will at some point. Because, I mean, there is the USDA organic mm -hmm. label, which has a little bit of weight behind it, but really not as much as you would imagine. But if it just says organic and doesn't say USDA organic, there's no anything. Nothing. Yeah. They don't have to do yeah. anything. Anyways, I'm sure we will touch on that in much more depth in some episode in the future. Mm -hmm. In June of 2018, there were four people that were arrested for their illegal harvest of 400 pounds of white sage in, North, in the North Etiwanda Preserve. 400 pounds? 400 pounds of white sage. That seems like that would be a lot. Yeah. Honestly, in my head, can't picture what white sage looks like. So, you know what? I'm actually going to Google that just so I have a little bit yeah, more of Google an idea. Yeah, Google it. Tell us what it looks like. Okay, so it is... It, white sage does look very similar to what I had in my my head of, like, sage that you use for cooking and stuff as well. Because, I mean, I cooked for a lot of years. Mm -hmm. um, I would imagine it would take thousands of plants to get 400 pounds. Yeah. So these people that were arrested, at first I was like, oh, fuck them. That's so awful. Why would they do that? Ugh. But the truth is, these are illegal immigrants that are desperate for work. And the 
supply and demand of white sage right now makes it worth the risk for them. So they're going to go out and do it because people are getting their ethically wild crafted sage, you know. Wild crafted. God, some of the words. Sorry, that just frustrates me now thinking about it. As someone who studied graphic design and marketing, it just pisses me off because it's so good and like so believable for people. Like, like, oh yeah, that you know, farm fresh. That's good. I mean, wild crafted literally to me sounds like it just means fucking poached, harvested from the mountains. Oh yeah, I guess like poached plants. Yeah, Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Maybe for me, I'm like, oh, it sounds like. Some oh no! I'm saying that. Went out and... I only think that now that you've talked about it. If I saw that gotcha. on packaging, I would have been like, yeah. "Oh, that's fucking cool." And now oh, that we're like exactly. actually cool. looking at what that could actually yeah. mean and the like ramifications of it, that's fucked up. Yeah, for a lot of plants, um, there is a permit that you can get to source this on public land, but there is not a single permit that allows this for white sage. So if you ever see someone saying that they're gathering or sustainably gathering whatever, this white sage, it's not. They're not. That's illegal. Super illegal. Super bad for the environment. You And plus, you don't want white sage anyway. Like, leave that to the Kumeyaay Indians. Like, that's their land. That's their plant. Just like, you don't need the white sage. There's plenty of other things you can burn. <laughs> it's That's just such a frustrating thing, too, is that... At, like you said, because of this high level of money being put into marketing these things is like what you need. And especially in an age where I feel like a lot of the younger generations like millennials and on have started trying to reclaim witchcraft and mm-hmm. like things of that nature and, yeah. and just spirituality in general. Mm-hmm. And they get marketed to heavily and make it seem as if you can't practice well or practice appropriately if you're not using these specific things when and again this is a personal in my opinion thing i believe that if you're going to be spiritual in any way it's more about the intention than it is the plant the specific plant that you're using so maybe like obviously i'd sure i i know that plants have had meaning for centuries and centuries and centuries and i get that but that doesn't mean that you can't ascribe the same meaning to a new plant as long as you put the right intention behind it right yeah totally yeah and i have that in my notes later too to talk about because it is so important and even like i feel like especially it's a white thing to be like oh this culture is really strong so this plant must be really strong and it's used historically for this so i'm gonna use it too when it's like why don't we look at our own cultures? There are plenty of references in the Bible to things that they burned. Oh, absolutely. But anyways, I'll talk about that in a minute. My whole last section is about cultural appropriation. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to be stepping on none of no. your toes, notes, notes, toes. Anyways, so let's talk a little bit about Palo Santo, which is similar but a little different than White Sage, but also commonly used in home spiritual practices, we'll call it. Palo Santo is Bursera graviolens tree. It is native to the Americas, Mexico, Peru, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Honduras, Galapagos Island, and mainland Ecuador. Palo Santo grows for about 50 to 70 years, each tree, 
and the way you are traditionally sourcing it is letting it fall on its own. And after it falls on its own, you leave it five to eight years for the oils and the heartwood to mature enough to make quality incense. Um, something that I hope everyone listening looks out for already, but if you're not, do it from now on. Always read your labels. If it says synthetic, you are just breathing in chemicals. Don't buy anything synthetic. Hmm. They can pretty much mimic the scent, but it's not, it's not going to be good for your lungs. <laughs> Palo Santo was added to the International Union for Conservation of Nature list because, not because it is being overly consumed right now, but a lot of people are warning that overharvesting could lead to, lead to extinction. A lot of people freak out about Palo Santo because of its mistaken identity. They think that it's the Bolnesia Sar, oh my god. Bolnesia sarmientoi tree, which is also known as Palo Santo, but it's a little bit different, darker, less common wood. Also in 2005, Peru listed the Palo Santo tree as endangered. But the thing about that is that with the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, they take into account global population, not local population. So if it's being overharvested in small places, or like, say, Peru, they can list it as in danger, even though the global population is okay, it could be overharvested and in danger in smaller places. Wow, I didn't realize that that was a... I mean, I guess realistically that makes sense, but didn't know that that's the way that worked. No, me either. I was like, oh. <laughs> so that's, again, why it's really important to see where your stuff is coming from. <laughs> the issue, though, even though it's not quote-unquote endangered, the habitat of the Palo Santo tree, I don't even think I'm saying it right, Pal Palo Santo? I'm so Midwestern, I'm like, Palo Santo! <laughs> um, so sorry if you're cringing at the way I say Palo Santo. Um, its habitat is the tropical dry forest, which is currently threatened. A lot of people are mowing this down for cattle, because it has this dry season and is habitable to people. So that means that this forest, only five to 10% of it is still intact. That's it? That's it. That's not great. Don't love That's that. Not great. Not great. So if you are looking for Palo Santo, you wanna get it someplace, you know, decent. Really, the best thing you can do is buy it from companies who talk about their farmers and where they're sourcing it from. This is personally my code of ethics. I do it for everything, even clothes. If you go somewhere and they don't have an About Me page and they don't tell you where they're sourcing from, don't buy from them, ever. Like, if people have to hide where they're getting their shit from, like, not worth buying from. Yeah, that's a pretty big red flag. Yeah. It is most abundant in Ecuador, so you're most likely to find something that is actually ethically sourced if it's from, from Ecuador. Ecuador. Herb. Oh. Okay. Whew. Last little bit. We're going to talk about cultural appropriation. <laughs> bom, 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 bom. See? Okay. This is something that's really important to me because we can talk about, oh, you're killing the rainforest. Oh, you're 
you know, doing this harm to the earth all day long. But I also want to talk about the harm you're doing to people and their culture. Like, again, I feel like it's a very capitalistic mindset to be like, I bought this so I can consume it. Instead of being like, okay, you know what? I need to think about this. Put a little more effort in besides my dollar. Where was it coming from? What was its historical significance? What was it used for? You know, kind of like, I don't want to say who does this belong to, but like, why do I feel like it's for my consumption? Yeah, I feel like that's totally fair. And it's really not even that much extra work when you think no, about it. Not. Like, it takes five minutes. We have access to the entire internet now. Yeah. It doesn't take a whole lot to do a little research anymore. I have to say, I love the smell of sage. I've grown it for myself. I I don't buy it. I, I grow it. I, I'm a gardener. Why wouldn't I? But um, Palo Santo, you know, I can't grow that. And I have used it, and I have some in my house, and I feel kind of badly about it now, because I didn't know any of this stuff before this episode, and it's like one of my favorite smells on the whole planet Earth ever. But now I'm like, you know what? I should start doing oak and stuff that's like native and local to me and means more to my culture and my family. So Yeah. Is it weird that I hate the smell of sage? No, it's a very divisive smell. I can tell you, I know exactly why I hate it, too. It's because... Mm. My grandpa used to raise hogs, mm-hmm. and when we take them to the butcher, they sage is used pretty frequently in the making of sausage. Mm. And so you go to the butcher, and it would be the smell of cold blood and sage. Oh my god! <laughs> and now I can't. I like. I don't. I can't handle sage anymore. It was too much. I just can't. Propagated incense line it. coming out soon. Cold blood, Cold and, blood sage and sage is the first. <laughs> oh God! Oh boy! So oh now boy. I'm, I think I think that probably ruins sage forever for me because I've not been. Yeah, that's fair. I've not encountered totally that fair. since I was probably what like <laughs> thirteen or fourteen years old, and that stuck with me. Yeah, it's such a strong scent too, and I feel like, um, oh, we did this before. What's the word that I'm looking for? It's the um. Nose memory. It's the, um... Olfactory? Olfactory memory, yeah. It's it's so strong. And especially for something like sage, where, like, it doesn't smell like anything else. Like, yeah, it's a very, like it's a very <laughs> unique smell. For yeah. sure. Yeah. So, I want... So, okay. Let's talk about, like, things to burn. But, so there's a very big difference between smudging and smoke cleansing. Smudging is an actual religious ceremony done by indigenous people. Smoke cleansing, sure, burn some stuff, burn some incense. You know, it's it's in the Bible, burning herbs, woods, incense, cinnamon, lavender, pine, cloves. Hyssop, burning hyssop in the Bible is in it 12 times. Damn. And then, of course, you know, frankincense, myrrh, everyone knows that. So why aren't we burning those things? But anyways, that's probably beside the point. We're reclaiming spirituality. And I feel like a lot of people are like, spirituality equals indigenous. But there's an issue with that because this is literally a society that has been a part of genocide. Like, (laughs) Yeah, it's totally fair. I'm not saying that it's like impossible for you to look towards native practices or indigenous practices and their spirituality and like divine some kind of knowledge from that, maybe some wisdom from that, because honestly, they treated this 
swath of the earth way better than we ever did. So 110%. So there's that. And I understand like taking some of those practices and using them in a way that is beneficial to everyone. But if you're just taking a practice because it sounds cool Mm -hmm. and because you think it's like cool for you to do and then decimating parts of the earth just to be able to perpetuate that idea of it's cool and they did it so I should be able to do it too. That's really fucked up. And it's it's like a very broad idea too, so it's kind of hard to like. Necess- it's not necessarily easy to think of that in those terms all the time, but I think that it is our burden. It's on our shoulders to do that. Absolutely. Here's my thing. Okay, so I would say that I'm pretty youngly spiritual. I would say I probably haven't gotten into a lot of these practices until the last ten years. But for me, if I'm gonna do something. I cannot imagine, okay, my intention for this spiritual practice is to cleanse my space of bad energy. Why would you be okay with starting something that was not sourced in a decent way? Why would you be okay with something that is being willfully misrepresented? Why would you use something that, I don't know, I get, yeah, again, it's just intention. It's just being mindful of these things. It's it's not like, oh, I do this one, two, three step, I hail Mary three times and then I'm forgiven. Yeah, it's no, I agree entirely. Works. I'm I mean I don't consider myself to be a very like super spiritual person in general. It's not the path I've ever walked and I don't know that I ever will. I find it all very fascinating and I definitely have no issue with it. But I mean I feel like it's just really not it's just really not that hard to not be an asshat, you know, like, like, it's not hard. No, to be respectful. I mean, I think respect should be the base of, I mean, idealistically, respect should be the base of all consumption, but that's not really the culture we live in. But anyways, so I want to put this into perspective a little bit <clears throat> and why taking from indigenous cultures is so offensive and shitty. It has been illegal for Native people to practice their religion until 1978. To this day, still, they are fighting to be able to perform their smudging rituals in hospitals. This is not ancient history. This is current. You know, like... Most of our parents were alive, like, before they were able to fucking even legally practice their spirituality. It's fucking obscene. So ridiculous. No, yeah. We're not talking ancestors. We're talking parents. Like, it's just the pain and the suffering, and then you're just going to take it to make your house smell good. Like, that's just so offensive to me. So offensive. And if, if, okay, you know what? I'm a white person. I don't really know how to say this other than, like, blah. I'm so angry about it. But here is someone who put it really beautifully, I think. This is a quote from Chelsea Luger, the founder of Well for Culture, which is an an indigenous wellness initiative. Wow, that's hard to say. (laughs) Indigenous wellness initiative. And she says, so when you scroll through Instagram and see a non-native person smudging with sage or palo santo and taking their artful picture of that, they've probably purchased that item from a corporate source. They're using our culture, but removing our faces from the picture. It forwards the narrative that we don't exist, 
and that we're not experts in our own fields and heritage. And that's harmful to us because it perpetuates the extremely prevalent notion that we don't exist. It's just so rough to think that like, after this, after this long, after so many years, that we've not even really made any real effort to fix any of this. I know, I know individuals have. There's only so much an individual can do. It's just sad that this is still such a prevalent problem when it just seems like such an easy Absolutely. problem to fix by literally just not being a fucking asshole. Yeah, I mean, it's we're seeing the end of genocide. I mean, between 1492 and 1600, 90 to 95% of indigenous people were murdered or, you know, lost through disease and all kinds of stuff Europeaners, Europeaners, colonizers brought. Um, but yeah, and it's like one of those things where origins matter. I mean, none of this exists in a vacuum. The history matters. What you are consuming matters because brands are going to exploit it. But you as the consumer, if you are participating, it is on you to do the research and be respectful and be mindful. And I do say. think that there is a reasonable gap for some ignorance because we are literally taught to be ignorant about stuff like this from from the time we're pretty much out the womb and going through school mm -hmm. and stuff you don't get you you're told that a lot of native americans lost their lives a lot of indigenous people lost their lives but you don't they never fully go through the scope of how horrible it actually was no because that would ha be having to admit how horrible we were. Exactly. Like that's our history, and we don't want to look at our history. So what I'm saying is this might, I know that even when we get into my portion of the podcast, I'm going to sound pretty preachy about it too. If you were literally ignorant, not willfully ignorant, but just ignorant of this until now, then that's an issue that you can fix. And nobody's going mm -hmm, to hate absolutely. you because you were ignorant. No, I'm not trying to shame yeah, anybody. That, that, not at all. I, just, I didn't know. Yeah, a lot of, most people don't know because you don't get told any of it. So like, no. but this is your opportunity if you're listening to this and you were ignorant about it in the past to not be ignorant anymore. And if you hear this and you continue to do the practices that are unhealthy for anyone. Or the environment or the planet. Then that makes you willfully <laughs> Yeah, that makes you willfully ignorant at that point. And that's, yeah. I don't even like using the word ignorant at that point anymore. I think that's just sheer stupidity. But yeah, it's being a stubborn bastard. And we don't want that because that is not how the world gets fixed. Absolutely not. Well, that's all I have. That's, that's my, that's my episode. Thank you all for bearing with me. I know I get a little, I get really heated. Like I'm really hot right now, literally and figuratively because I'm like, uh, it's just every time I get into consumerism and how unethical it really is at its core, it's just really infuriating to me. I mean, it's just a, it always has been and will continue to be until there is adequate work done to fix it, a shit system. It's a system built yeah. to exploit. It, it's literally built off the exploitation of everyone involved except 100%. for the people at the top profiting off of that exploitation. Yeah, and it's just frustratingly ubiquitous is how I would put yeah, it. That... It's like, until I started reading really a lot in my older years, I mean, I grew up in a white suburban bubble until I started like really researching this stuff recently. It's like, Oh my God, like 
I have been so inundated with this is the only way to live. And then I read about other cultures and I'm like, why? Why are we living like this? Yeah. This is horrible. Not necessary at all. There's nothing, there's nothing ne- like makes it necessary for the way that we do things to exist. It's stupid. Yeah. Anyways, thanks for going on that journey with me. I hope it was okay. Well, I've got a little bit of that too, so. Oh, let's bring the fire this episode. I was like, I want to talk about spicy foods. And you and I are like, fuck, it's spicy. <laughs> It'll be spicy, but it ain't going to be food. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, well, Let's just dive in. So. Let's just dive in. Let's do it. What are you telling me about? A lot of, it's a very similar concept to what you're talking about. Not exactly the same. It definitely doesn't, it doesn't quite touch as much on cultural appropriation as much as just like eco-terrorism kind of you know like <laughs> oh um maybe not quite that, this that, is our light and fun that's episode a, <laughs> that, that's a little that, that was probably a little bit of an extreme view on it but so i mean i want to talk about what i consider to be a pretty big problem in the plant world especially as someone who has a bedroom full of tropical plants that honestly i haven't really looked that deeply into the sourcing of where they came from Oh shit! I have you know. Oh, God. So here we go. So it's it's this is this just doing this research, even though it was quick research, was a lot. But um, if you have been a regular listener, I kind of touched on this in episode six when I talked about orchid history. It was the second part and the beginning of what I'm sure will be several parts of orchid knowledge that I intend to bestow at some point. We had to space it out. Um, but some plants do have very specific parameters by which they grow. And, you know, with that being true, you see populations of plants that kind of get clustered into smaller areas. When these plants that have been clustered into smaller areas become popular in the cultivated plant world, unfortunately, we can kind of see an unhealthy trend of poaching these plants for profit. And a lot of times people have little to no concern for the health of the ecosystem when they are collecting these plants. So my intention today is to kind of shed a little bit of light on the industry and then some, a few things that we can kind of do to try and avoid it. So like I said, many of us being plant lovers are kind of drawn to some of the more rare and unusual plants, especially once you have like a sprawling collection. I know I'm certainly very guilty of this as again probably i think that was actually probably episode five when i called phalaenopsis orchids pedestrian i get bored <laughs> i don't think that was even an orchid episode it might not have been like, i don't remember when that happened. i think it was our first mini and we were like oh <laughs> phalaenopsis so pedestrian <laughs> but i i get stuck on this idea that i would rather have like rarer more curious plants to take care of because it's not only is it a little bit more of a challenge, but it's also more fun. They usually have like crazier looking foliage or blooms or whatever it might be. And truth be told, you can only have so many pothos. That's very, I mean, there are a bunch of different kinds of pothos, but that That's is very true. true. <laughs> but in our search for the, these more rare and unusual plants, I'm not trying to tell you that you shouldn't be seeking out plants like that because I want to be able to continue to do the same thing as well. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping that this will be and give you an idea of how really not difficult it is to ask some questions and find out that you're getting at 
ethically supplied plants. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are many plants around the world that get poached. Some examples that just related to North American plants specifically are ginseng, American ginseng specifically, mm-hmm. orchids, trillium, Venus flytraps, and golden seal. And those are just a few of many that get poached around just the United States. And by taking these plants, poachers are pushing numerous plant species closer towards extinction because they're not really looking at like how much they're taking or giving much of a shit about like, is this an ethical way or a responsible way to be harvesting this plant or is it not? And as more and more plants are poached, the value of that plant rises because it also increases the rarity of said plant. Mm. So it's like diamonds. Yeah, exactly. And in recent years, it's become even easier to poach plants because of the internet. So finding information about where to get these plants and, and how to harvest them and places to go is just more accessible. So one of the, I'm going to focus on something that's kind of a little closer to home for me. Um, Frankie and I both live in North Carolina, which is a hotbed for poaching in the United States, especially yeah, almost everything you mentioned. Yeah. Gross here. here. Trillium is one of my favorite things to find on hikes. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? You said Venus fly Venus traps. fly traps are what I'm going to focus on. Oh, gotcha. So in bogs and swamps towards the coast of North Carolina and also into part of the coast of South Carolina, you can find the Venus flytrap. And a quote from Johnny Randall, who's the director of conservative programs of the North Carolina Botanical Garden, he says, carnivorous plants in general have been poached for decades. The coast of North Carolina is a global hotspot for carnivorous plant diversity, particularly with the Venus flytrap. But the ones that are most often poached are the pitcher plants, and many of those are very rare and endangered and becoming even more Mm. so. And the ginseng harvest in our mountains, which is something that is permitted, but many people go out and do illegal harvests or poaching. So Mm. it's kind of like this whole thing where it probably started off innocently enough, like, hey, I can make a little money off of this and it's fine, but realistically it's not. And a personal example, and I would like to think that my grandpa did it right, but I used to go hunting for ginseng with my grandpa. Now, granted, it was all on his land, so none of it was illegal. We weren't, like, going and trespassing and doing stuff like that. We had a lot of land out in the mountains of western North Carolina. So he would go on his land specifically. And to his credit, essentially when you look at ginseng, you can tell how many years old it is by the prongs it puts out. So it puts out one prong annually. So you can tell if a plant is one year old, two years old, three year old, so on and so forth, um, which is really interesting. But um, he always had an unspoken rule that if it were fewer than three prongs, you don't take it, period. Love that. And also, if he found a plant that was one or two prong, he always searched for them when they were seeding because they have a very beautiful bright red seed. It makes them much easier to identify and find. He would take those seeds and toss them throughout the woods to try and, like, increase the growth and repopulate as he was taking these plants. So I think that he did it in one of the more ethical ways. Um, 
but lots of people aren't going to do that. When I first moved here, uh, I was approached by some people because they knew that I was interested in foraging and I didn't really know much when I first moved here. I know a lot more now. But I was approached by some people and they were like, hey, do you want to come forage for ginseng with us? It's super expensive and you can resell it at the farmer's market for a bunch of money. And now I'm kind of glad I said no because I'm like, they didn't really seem like they knew what they were doing. Uh, like I said, I think my grandma, my grandma, my grandpa did it well. Um, but there, I remember there was one year where, because the, the prices fluctuate every year and there's a different mm-hmm. price for fresh ginseng and dried ginseng. Because it's by the pounds. Gotcha. If you bring in fresh, it's usually like eighty to ninety dollars a pound. If you bring in dried, I think Whoa. the last figure I looked at, which don't quote me on this, anybody who's listening to this, is usually each year now is around one hundred and fifty to three hundred and fifty dollars per dry pound. Holy shit! I remember one year when my grandpa was going to sell it. It was actually one thousand two hundred dollars a dried <gasps> pound of ginseng, and this was over a decade ago when that happened but well no wonder people are fucking going out into the forest and oh that's yeah and they oh my god apparently they can also tell the difference between wild and grown ginseng i don't understand exactly how they can do that i didn't look into that but it is a thing that you can do you can tell the difference but um so wild ginseng carried a higher bounty than than grown like if you like tried to grow your own ginseng which also isn't really that hard to do um but anyways that was a whole nice little aside on ginseng but i want to focus on venus flytraps or at least that's the research i did so in january of 2015 north carolina actually passed a law that made it a felony to poach wild venus flytraps which is dope doesn't mean it ended but that is something they did but poachers have been known to pay as little as 25 cents for an illegally harvested fly, Venus flytrap. They like go onto these places where people own the land and pay them 25 cents and they will collect thousands of them and pay 25 cents each for the ones they've collected and they can resell it for around $10. So that's a humongous, humongous profit. Wow. Also, side note, like I have tried to own a venus flytrap i didn't check where it was sourced i feel really badly about it now i will continuing forward because that's what this whole episode is about is better practices moving forward but i immediately killed it like immediately so i have to assume that like these plants that are especially venus flytrap that are that are wild crafted mm-hmm. <laughs> like they have to so much of them die once they leave ideal conditions which also ups the price and rarity. Yeah. I mean, Venus flytraps seem like a very hard thing to take care of because they do grow in swamps. Realistically, if you do have one, again, make sure that it's ethically sourced. But if you want to keep it alive, it needs to be usually covered. So a situation of like a terrarium or something tends to favor them because they like super high humidity. See, that was my problem, though, is that I put it in a terrarium and it got sunburnt. Because it was, like, the sun in a terrarium will be exponentially brighter because of the glass. And, but they're also, they're ground growers. So they grow underneath usually a top cover. So they don't need, they need sun, but they need bright diffused light. Not ever mm. any kind of bright direct light. Um, and also you have to use distilled water. Literally tap water will kill them every time. 
period. Is it the salt again, like we talked about? I'm honestly not sure. I haven't really looked that deeply into it, but I do know that tap water, the chemicals and stuff in tap water will practically always kill your Venus flytraps or pitcher plants, almost any of the bog-style carnivorous plants need distilled water because they do have that system where they exist of super high levels of filtration through several levels of soil. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Because it's it's, yeah, it's a whole thing. But um, some some people will probably ask why these greenhouses wouldn't just grow from seed instead of trying to poach them. And the yeah. unfortunate reality is that most of the plants that you see being poached take years to be of any kind of sellable size or like profitable size after germination of a seed. So it just takes so long mm-hmm. that it's very difficult to start them like that. That makes sense. Um, I mean, you know me. I love a two. I live a two-inch pot plant, and then once they get big, I'm like, I don't have space for this anymore. But it takes years to get past a two-inch pot. Yeah, I'm also the exact opposite of you. I like big plants. <laughs> yeah. Big plants. I like little ten. I like tiny babes. <laughs> um, yeah, never. I always want. I want my. I. I pretty much, I start at five-inch pots. <laughs> Five inch or up. Um, I'm like, uh, I'm drunk walking around downtown. I really like this plant. I'm going to take a clipping. They're never going to miss. I'm going to root it and grow it myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would call myself a plant rogue, honestly. I mean, I love that, though. I mean, okay, so, but for legal purposes, that was all hypothetical. I'm a hypothetical yeah, plant rogue. You've never actually done this. It's just something that you've no, considered. No, I would never. I would never. Ethically sourced. Wildcrafted. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, a little bit of backstory about the Venus flytrap. So in 1760, the North Carolina colonial governor, who was Arthur Dobbs at the time, described the discovery of the plant in his diary. And he said, The greatest wonder of the vegetable kingdom is a very curious unknown species. Upon touching the leaves, they instantly close like a spring trap. And then more than 200 years after that, Buildings and events carry that namesake. So, like, it's a thing in North Carolina to, like, talk about Venus flytraps because it is one of the... It's, like, a very cool plant that is native to here. Um, And then in 2005, the state actually declared it the official carnivorous plant for North Carolina. Which is kind of fun. Wait, the Mm flytrap? It's... Not the pitcher plant. No, the flytrap is the official carnivorous plant of North Carolina. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Does every state have an official carnivorous plant? That's so I odd. kind of doubt it, but maybe. Yeah, I was like, I feel like we've got them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but all of the love for this plant kind of made its popularity too vast, and people wanted to own them. People wanted to have them in their house. And while it's not too terribly difficult to get sustainably grown specimens, it obviously hasn't stopped people from poaching the plant. And it's actually as early as 1956 when the state passed legislation to protect the Venus flytrap. And the state sells permits to those who want to collect flytraps from private land with the owner's permission. But poachers have scrounged forest floors for decades seeking to sell the plants on the black market. And it's easy, he said, to collect up to 2,000 of the dime-sized plants in one single sweep. Because they're so wow. small. 
Dang. And they also say that it's kind of unfortunate because a lot of the guys they catch are like, it's been a family tradition to do that. So it's like almost a family business to go out and search for them. And so it's like, not only is the person now getting caught for it, but their dad had gotten caught for it before and their dad's dad before that. And I mean, like I said, up until 2015, it was just a misdemeanor charge. I mean, now it carries a felony. So hopefully that'll help quell some of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And unfortunately, it's estimated that only around 35,000 of them continue to grow in the wild. 35,000. Yeah. That is not enough. No, it's not a lot at all. It's a very, very small number. Mm -hmm. Wait, so did you say earlier... That Venus flytraps cannot be farmed, or it's not that they can't be farmed. It's that it takes a long time to start from seed germination. They're also gotcha. clonable now, which means that you can like grow and split and have clones of the same plant. You know, similar to what we do with orchids. Yeah, but obviously that hasn't stopped people from poaching it. Yeah. Oh. And so poaching peaks when the plant is in bloom and most visible. So that's from late May to mid-June. And a lot of the poaching actually happens on state property. It's not limited to that, but a lot of it does happen there. And then you also have people who still from farms trying to do it properly. So there's a plant nursery near Supply, North Carolina called the Flytrap Farm. And in 2013, they got burglarized and the the people who stole the plants took more than 18,000 fly traps, which was estimated to be worth $65,000. Oh my God. Worth of Venus fly traps because they can go and sell these plants for more than what that nursery who was trying to do the right thing was able to do. Oh, that's terrible. It's like, it's like, did we ever talk about on this podcast, I can't remember if we did or not, that like 600-year-old bonsai tree that was stolen and probably killed because the people who stole it probably didn't know how to take care of it? I honestly am not sure if we've talked about that on the podcast or not. I'm positive that we've talked <sighs> about it in real life outside of recording, but I'm not positive that we did. But that is really fucked up. So Okay, I just need to say, for the record, on the record, some things have way 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 more value than what they're worth fiscally oh absolutely most things absolutely (laughs) absolutely that's just fair we also have to talk like think about what drives the demand for carnivorous plants and obviously that's more of like psychological thing but there's a professor of plant biology at cornell who said in an interview that Apparently, ingesting the plant's juices has been marketed as a way to increase libido or help the body heal. So not only are we taking them purely for aesthetics, but there are people taking them for holistic health benefits. So the fascination with the plants also fuels demand. Mm -hmm. And there's another professor that I read a quote from. He said, the fact that the damn plant moved makes it scary. (laughs) And adding that its status is something illegal to poach makes it sexy. So for me, that was fun. He's not wrong. (laughs) It's a fun, it's like a funny quote, kind of, but also very true. Like, people enjoy doing things that adds the thrill of 
of doing something illegal. That's just a thing. It's part of human nature, I feel like, to, like, get away with something is satisfying in some situations. One of my, like, most vivid childhood memories is my mom had a Venus flytrap and, like, sticking my finger in there to make it close. That was, like, that's a very vivid memory for yeah. me. Yeah, and it's also something that you shouldn't do if you own one. Don't, don't no, ever do that. No, absolutely don't. Don't put a Venus flytrap trap in front of a five-year-old. <laughs> Fair <laughs> like... enough. Big facts. <laughs> um, so with all of this, and again, I could have talked just as lengthily about any of the any of the poached species of plants that were on the list that I read off. Um, but let's talk a little bit about how to maybe prevent yourself from adding to this problem. So the Conservancy itself warned that there was a good chance that fly traps sold at a flea market on a roadside or over the internet have been stolen. Mm. So those are the easiest places to get away with it. Um, mm. So if you're going to look for a Venus fly trap, try and buy it. Hopefully your local nurseries have enough sense to get it from someplace that is cloning it. But you're always, you can always ask their source and if they're unwilling to tell you your source it's the same as what frankie was mentioning earlier if they're unwilling to tell you how they sourced it then that's not a good sign and that's a red flag and you probably shouldn't buy it and realistically there's not a whole lot that us as as an average person can do to stop poaching other than firstly if you happen upon a rare or protected plant if you're out in nature Fucking leave it alone. Don't fuck with it. Don't take it. You can look at it. Hello, you're beautiful. You can take pictures of it. You can do whatever you want to. But even if you do take a photograph of a picture of a especially rare plants, make sure that there's no way that some shitty person on whatever social media platform you're posting to can tell exactly where you are. Don't give them the opportunity to do something that you are better than doing yourself. So keeping that location a secret also helps prevent potential plant poachers from actively searching for the plant. Um, And I know this is forager's code. Like, I have been a part of people that are like, I will show you where I get my mushrooms, and you need to swear to me that you will tell no one, and I will know it's you if someone starts showing up at my place. Yeah, and that... Like, forager's code is like, you do not share where you get this stuff, because people will... What's the word I'm looking exploit for? Exploit it. Like, they'll exploit it. Exactly. So that's a that's a couple things you can do. And like I was saying before, be very sure to research and ask questions of the people from whom you buy. Even if it's your super heady, cool plant store in your town, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're practicing at their 100% most ethical ability all yeah. the time. And some of them may also just simply not know that they're being harmful when they're ordering from somebody who's not ethical themselves. They assume that the person's ethical and they don't even know. And by asking, you might be helping spread that knowledge to them that they also need to be more aware of who they're buying from. Mm -hmm. And plant poachers have managed to dodge a lot of this like media attention because it's not as... It doesn't have the same broad appeal as like animal poaching, you know? So it with that being said, I know that like owning plants and having them in your home as a hobby is a very 
very much so growing demographic of peoples. And so if that's true and all the plant lovers make sure that we are shopping consciously and sustainably, then the poachers can't make any money off of that anymore and they won't be able to continue destroying entire populations of plants. Mm-hmm. So just, again, I know that this has been a very preachy episode, but... Hit them at the bottom. You have to hit them at the bottom dollar because that's the only way our society listens. Absolutely. So, like I said, as long as we are doing our research and taking just a little extra time out of our day to make sure that we're not... We are ethically Yeah, that consuming. we're consuming ethically, then that kind of destroys their ability to continue doing what they're doing. Yeah. And again, I could talk all day about how it's incredibly frustrating to me that the burden of trying to fix all of society's problems falls onto the shoulders of the populace instead of onto the shoulders of the capitalists who make hand over foot every time they open up their ledger books. But that aside, we can fight against that as well. But what you can do in your current day to day doesn't do anything but help. I mean, it doesn't help as much as it would help if corporations weren't pieces of shit, but it helps some. And something's better than nothing in this situation. I want to reiterate too a point that I don't, I think I failed to make succinctly earlier in that like we as consumers, we're not just taking, like we can also add. So let's say all of us decided we wanted to burn Palo Santo and we, but we only got it ethically sourced or we got it where it grows most abundant. That can help the reforestation it can help by building this economy. I mean, it's, it's, I hesitate because consumerism is hard because it can also come with detriments. But if you are consuming with a code of ethics, you can actually help populations and growth. I think honestly, it's kind of a shift in the power dynamic of, of how we look at capitalism itself and, I don't really think it'd be that difficult to take back some of the control from the corporations. It just takes everyone that gives a shit to be conscious of what they're doing, you know? People come together for a common cause. And, like, this is really what I want, too, is, like, everyone listening, I hope that you as a plant person want to be an ethical consumer. You want to help this earth. You want to care about the growth and the green world and all this, like... We have to come together to make this happen because, like, we're all green nerds. Like, (laughs) we're not, you know, mainstream. Yeah. (laughs) And we should be because, like, it matters. We only have this one organic spaceship we're living on, so we should care about it and care for it. It's a difficult thing to convince people of, but you're definitely right. It shouldn't be. Why is it? (laughs) People don't want to hear any narrative other than it's it's hard to get people to listen to a narrative that tells them that they've been doing something wrong that's fair that's fair yeah so anyways this de- <laughs> this episode is dedicated to doing things wrong but only doing things wrong once. yeah learn from your <laughs> mistakes try anyways thank you so much for joining us we're really happy you've been here with us and this stuff is really important to us and i think it's really important to the world and we're really really happy and excited that it's important to you too and you've been listening and hanging out with us and it's just been such a joy yeah absolutely guys i can't even begin to express how exciting it's been to watch 
you guys comment and talk with us and and engage with us and and it really means the world because we've spent a lot of time and energy doing this and it's really nice to like see that there are people out there listening and subscribing and reviewing and commenting and just all of the things everything that you do that we can see makes us feel very good and like makes it feel like this is worthwhile and a good thing that we're doing absolutely and we definitely want to see more of that and if you're listening yeah. there are several avenues you can take to reach out to us if you want to get up with us on an email like if you have episode suggestions or questions for us or or pictures of your picture, plant. Yeah. No one sent us pictures of yeah, we all, plants. We, yeah, we would we love, really want to see we'd them. We'd love to see pictures of plants. Absolutely. <laughs> so if you want to hit us up on email, you can find us at... Propagatedpodcast at gmail.com. If you decide that you'd rather look at all the beautiful pictures on Instagram, you can find us at... Propagatedpodcast. And that's P-R-O-A-P-A-G-E-T. Did I spell that right? No, you didn't spell spell that very wrong. (laughs) Did I spell it wrong? You said P-R-O-A. You said P-R-O-A. Oh, okay. No, it's propagated. P-R-O-P, right? Propagated. Propagated. It's P-R-O-P-A-G-A-T-E-D. Oh, dear Lord. Yes. Propagated. That's... I've never been good at spelling. I don't know why I went for that, but I went for it with confidence. And you know what? Here we go. (laughs) If you'd like to find us on... Twitter, you can find us. Propagated pod. Yeah, it's shortened because Twitter likes to not let you have enough characters. Yeah. No, um, Twitter doesn't like long names. And then very recently, I started our Facebook page, which you can find Ooh. us. Also, just search Propagated Podcast on there. We're having fun and we're changing the world. We're so glad that you are here with us. And just one more time for Frankie, it's P R O P. Oh my God. <laughs> A-T-E-D. Propagated. Okay, but here's the thing, though. I know someone else out there has spelled it wrong at some point. And, like, no, you're not allowed. I have 100% (laughs) spelled it wrong several times. (laughs) I'm not saying... It's in my autofill now, so I don't have to think about it anymore. I'm not saying that I am, like, spelling bee champion over here. I just have spelled it wrong so many times that I refuse to do it anymore. (laughs) I just I have to say it in my head as propagated because I always used to spell it propo. Give you that, give yourself that clue of inflection right there. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, y'all, for joining us. We appreciate you so much. Bye, guys. Bye.